Pastor Mike, come and share. Thank you, Pastor Carl. Good morning, Loudonville. Well, we are midstream in this summer sermon series that we've called When Jesus Comes to Church. Truth be told, Jesus is here every time we are gathered together. But there's a special emphasis that we've had this summer. This summer, we've looked at the Bible, the beginning chapters of Revelation, John's revelation that he had on the island of Patmos. And contained in those opening chapters are a number of letters that Christ wrote through John, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he sent these letters to different churches around uh, Asia Minor, a lot concentrated in Turkey. So we have spent, we are now midstream in this. We, a while ago, Pastor Paul took us through a sermon in church to Ephesus, the persecuted church in Smyrna. Last week, Pastor Paul shared with us some really hard words for the church in Pergamum. And today, I'm going to take us into Thyatira. Now, these letters that John wrote, well, they're twofold. First of all, they are letters specifically addressed to different churches in the first century. These letters were very specific to these churches in their local setting and the struggles that they were facing. But these letters are also symbolic. These letters speak to the church universally throughout time. And it's actually interesting, fascinating. It's why we're studying this, because it goes through different characteristics and phases that churches enter into. We are no different. Here in Loudonville, uh, in the American church, the church in the West, the global church, we each see aspects of the struggles that we face as the church here in 2021 in the words that the Apostle John used, well, truthfully, the words that Christ had that he wants to share to these churches that we read about in Revelation. So what can we learn about Thyatira? Well, just a few background comments about Thyatira. And I know we have, we have a map. We'll, we'll pull that map back up again. Thyatira is 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. So like I said, these, are all, these churches are all clustered in a very small area in modern-day Turkey. Thyatira was founded by Seleucus, and Seleucus was one of Alexander the Great's generals. He founded that in the days of the Greek Empire as a northern outpost, a military outpost. Its goal was to protect the northern territories. It was not exactly a hub of commerce, but Thyatira did serve a purpose in the ancient world. By the time that the Apostle John wrote this letter, and you can probably see that by the compass over there, you see Patmos. It might be hard for for us to see here in the sanctuary, but maybe if we're looking online, the island of Patmos is where the Apostle John was writing his revelation, and he could almost see all of these churches off in the distance. And by the time that he wrote this, Thyatira had obviously become a Roman, Roman province, And manufacturing was what they were known for. There were a handful of things that they specialized in in Thyatira. It was a lot of textiles and a lot of brass and bronze and metals and linens as well. It was a very big manufacturing town. In fact, one little interesting side note. uh, It's not going to be on the screen here, but Lydia, we encounter the woman named Lydia in Acts chapter 16. The Apostle Paul's on one of his missionary journeys. 
And in his travels in Philippi, he encounters a woman named Lydia, who is a seller of linen, uh, purple cloth. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from Acts 16. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. She said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So the apostle Paul, as he's on a missionary journey in Philippi, encounters a woman from Thyatira named Lydia, who would later go on to be one of the founders of the Philippian church. You see how so many things are interconnected. And Lydia probably was a very successful businesswoman in Thyatira, specializing in purple cloth. Culturally speaking, real quick about Thyatira. Culturally, Thyatira could be described as work hard, play hard. As I mentioned, they were known for their manufacturing, but so much of the culture of that city revolved around commerce, revolved around workers' guilds. And we see this by some of the inscriptions found in the excavations of that city. These guilds functioned, it's not exactly an equivalent, but it's close to it, as a modern-day union. And these guilds were all over the city. In fact, the, the city was was structured that way where they, you had different town uh, centers or squares and each guild was responsible for a different part of the town and the squares in the town. The workers' guilds really kind of ran Thyatira. And part of what made them distinctive, it's a little bit different than our modern-day unions, was they had patron gods in the Greek, going back to ancient Greece. And they would adopt these patron gods and fire tire one of the patron gods that a lot of the guilds would almost well they would worship was apollo apollo was in greek mythology the son of zeus so you had apollo being well borderline worshipped by the people in fire tire and then of course you had the emperor and the emperor also claimed the title, the son of God. So you had two different forms of worship in Thyatira where they were worshiping the son of God being the emperor and the son of God being Apollo. You can see where Jesus is going to open up the passage we're going to read in a moment by rightly claiming that title for himself, the son of God. Well, let me just quickly take you into these trade guilds, these unions, one level deeper. Part of being a part of these workers' guilds was that you would take part in festivals and parties. Some of them involved worship of Apollo, but all of them involved, well, eating food. I mean, come on, really, what kind of a, what kind of a party is it without good food? Can I have an amen? So they focused on food, but these, these festivals focused on food and partying in, well, we could say the wrong way. Right way for them. But it was very difficult to be a Christian. Let me explain. A lot of the food that was eaten at these festivals was sacrificed to the gods, sacrificed to idols. And a lot of the parties involved food and, of course, beverage and the wine was flowing. And these trade guilds would oftentimes devolve these festivals into orgies. Again, you find this in archaeological evidence from the town as they have excavated it. And these festivals involved incredible amounts of, well, food, alcohol, and sexual immorality. Some things haven't changed in a few thousand years. 
it was difficult to be a Christian in Thyatira. You, simply put, you could just say, well, I'm going to hold off. I'm going to abstain from that. But to do that, really honestly put your job at risk. It would be roughly the equivalent of not paying your union dues or sk- skipping out on too many union meetings. Couldn't just say, thanks, but you guys go have your fun. It, was, it came at a cost. So if you're a Christian, put yourself in that type of a situation in ancient Thyatira, and you're left with this really difficult existence. Because on the one hand, you need to provide for your family, so you're part of these guilds, these trade guilds, and this is how you put food on the table. But on the other hand, to be part of that meant that you needed to potentially compromise your faith. And if you didn't do so, you're putting your job and your livelihood at risk. What would you do? Would you take a stand? Some people would take a stand, and they, they entered into a very lonely existence and one that, well, led to the unemployment line far too often. Or you could compromise. You can compartmentalize your faith, and you could compromise, and you could say, all right, Lord, I, I am yours, but hey, this is the cost of doing business. This is the cost of being part of the culture of Thyatira. I got to go to these parties. Far too many Christians ended up doing that, as we're going to read. Or you could maybe take counsel in your local church, right? Isn't that what so many of us would do? Put in those difficult situations, the family of God comes together and builds one another up, and we build our faith together. This is part of the lifeblood of what it means to be part of the church. So let's talk about, let's read about this church in Thyatira. We're going to read from Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18. And this, this is the longest of the letters that Jesus writes to the seven churches. And I just invite you to read along with me uh, in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is speaking. He says, To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her, with, and I, I'm sorry, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. That is an intense letter from Christ to this church in Thyatira. And what I would like us to do, I want to unpack this for us a little bit. I want us to see the message that Jesus has to speak to this particular church. And also, I want us to look at and really examine 
what are the universal principles here that extend way beyond just the first century when this was written? What truths can we pull? What application can we pull for us in the 21st century? So let's dive into this. Thyatira, what I call the cost of culture. And you see this image on the screen here uh, that is going to provide the basis of our outline. And you'll see two coins associated with Thyatira, the the cost of culture. There they are. They might be a little difficult to see in the lighting here, but those coins were actually excavated from the city of Thyatira, and they are of Apollo. So you see they really did worship this patron god of the town, and that's the cost of doing business in Thyatira. Well, the first thing I want us to see is that the letter actually starts off on a positive note. In many ways, this was a growing church. You just look at verse 19. I want to take us to, to verse 19 because this really opens us up in a positive way. It's as though Jesus is not just giving the church a report card, but, but more like an assessment. And he starts off with the good news. And he, he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, and your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you first did. By all the metrics, this is a church that was growing. This was a healthy church. It had the first fruit of the Spirit defining it, love. It had, it's almost as though they had applied James chapter 2. You have faith and you have deeds. And they're both held in this beautiful, you know, not tension, but this, this great equilibrium of faith and deeds that they are known for. This church is known for its service to the community. In other words, they're not just there putting a sign on the front door saying, hey, this is our church. They got indwelt into their community and they served those that were in need. It was not easy to be a Christian in Thyatira. And this is a church that persevered. Can we relate to any of those qualities in our world today? That's Loudonville's opportunity to say yes. All right. All right, I think we were there. See, I threw you off there. It was going to be an amen, but I said yes. We want to be a church that is known for our love. At the beginning of the Fruit of the Spirit sermon series, I preached on love and, and the preeminence of that first fruit of the spiritual gifts. And this is a church known for its love. May we be known as a church for its good deeds. May we be known as a church for our faith our perseverance in the midst of a culture that is growing increasingly hostile towards the gospel, may we be known for our perseverance that we stayed true to the word of God. And may we also be known for our service as we get outside of the walls and the boundaries of this building and we get into the community. That's been one of the the hallmarks of of Loudonville, at least in the time that I've been here. And I know it's certainly a lot longer than since I've been here. Fire Tyre is starting off on the right foot here. And you see Jesus just closes up verse 19 by saying, and you are now doing more than you did at first. That's not to say that Fire Tyre just didn't know what they were doing when they got started. It's to say that this is a church that has grown in Christ. So he starts off his assessment. All right, let's hit all the positive news. And then the tone of this letter changes pretty significantly uh, in verse 20. But before we read that, I just want to share the second, the second point for us today. Is that we're going to talk about this person, Jezebel. Jezebel was a false prophet that was allowed to teach heresy. 
in Thyatira. And this is part of the crux of the letter that Jesus speaks to this church. And I want us to to talk about this. So for context, let's read verse 20 together again. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, there's so much that we can say about Jezebel. First of all, Jezebel, a lot of the commentators that I read, Jezebel is likely not this person's real actual name. It's likely a representative name. But either way, there's no conclusive evidence either way. Let's just go with Jezebel. You have someone at this church that has been given a platform to teach and to preach heresy. To to be able to be so tolerant of the culture that exists in Thyatira that they have completely adopted Thyatira's values instead of standing true to the word of God. Jezebel, the origin of that name, at least biblically, goes back to 1 Kings chapter 18 in the Old Testament where you have King Ahab who had a marriage to Jezebel, Phoenician princess, and a lot of times these marriages were there for political alliances as much as they were out of of anything else. Jezebel, being a Phoenician princess, was also a prophetess. This is going back to the Old Testament person of Jezebel. And this prophetess, she introduced the nation of Israel, not to the truths of God, but to Baal worship. Jezebel had a great deal of influence in ancient Israel, and she took it upon herself to assemble prophets, false prophets throughout the nation of Israel that were prophets of Baal. Now, in 1 Kings 19, you see Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, and you've got that very famous challenge that happens. All of that is due to, ultimately, Jezebel's influence in the nation of Israel. Not only did she have prophets set up, that were dedicated to Baal worship, but she made it her mission to try to wipe out the prophets of God. This did not sit well with prophets like Elijah during that time, and Elijah had a few choice words for Jezebel, and you can read the accounts of this in 1 Kings. He actually prophesied about her death, and he was proven right. Now that is some interesting reading. I encourage you all, I implore you all, to go just do a little biographical study of Jezebel, her life, and her death. I'll save the details on that for another sermon. But let's just say she met a gruesome end. But Jezebel in the Old Testament was somebody that introduced idolatry into the nation of Israel. Jezebel in Revelation chapter 2 is someone that introduced idolatry in different forms to the church and led God's church down the road of sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. This is a warning to the church. It was a warning to ancient Israel. It was a warning to the church at Thyatira 2,000 years ago, and it is a warning to us today. So you can lean in for this part. Hopefully you've been leaning in the whole time. Idols. So many times we get this image in our mind of what an idol is, and we can be so easily dismissive of it, as if it's a history lesson. Okay, got it. They ate food sacrificed to idols. Got it. Apollo, the patron god of Thyatira. Sure, there's probably a statue of him somewhere. I can look it up online and find it. I saw his picture on the coin. 
What possible meaning does that have in our world today? Culturally speaking, we are not necessarily in the habit of bowing down and worshiping idols, or we are not engaged in the practice of Baal worship outright. If that is true of you, I'll be in my office after service. You can, we can, I would love to hang out and talk. But what are the idols of our world today? Do they even exist? Do we have to worry about this? The answer is, well, yes. We're not necessarily bowing down, worshiping idols, but we've changed what idols are and what they, how they come to be represented in our culture today. And all you need to do is just a little bit of critical thinking to see the destructive and seductive power of the idols that we have established for ourselves. Just a few easy examples off the top. The idols in our world. Anything that takes the worship of God and supersedes that is an idol. Now, we wouldn't necessarily go out and say that. It's not about what we say. It's about how we live. So you have the worship of the one true God, and this is the calling of every Christian. But when something in our life, maybe it's a relationship that maybe takes first place over the worship of God, not by our words, but by our actions, by our devotion, that has become an idol. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's the pursuit and love of money. Or maybe not even just the love of money. Maybe it's an obsession with money. Material things, material wealth that you just keep striving after again and again and again, year after year. You worship God with your lips, but by your lifestyle, you are pursuing the idol of money or material possessions. Maybe for you, it's living for the weekend. Work hard, play hard. That was really how they did it in Thyatira. Maybe that describes you as well. I'm just working for the weekend. I'm living my life for that social group, for that weekend experience, for, to, to party hard after a long week of work. I'm a Christian. I, I profess Christ with my mouth. But take a look at my life, and it's pretty clear that there are some idols at work. We go on and on and on. How about sports? Sports can't possibly be an idol, can it? See people elbowing spouses. By our words, of course not. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I know the Bible. But you take, I'm sorry, this is, a, this is a one that hits all too close to home. It's too easy. You take the worship of God. That exuberant worship of God. Even the songs that we sing here on a Sunday morning and you put yourself in that moment of getting lost in worship and you think about the words that you're saying and the truth of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and what type of emotion does that produce in you? When your team wins a Super Bowl six times. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, that was too easy. I apologize. I repent of that. (laughs) Sorry. When your team wins a Super Bowl, what about the emotion of that? The, your dedication. Who can name the starting lineup of the 1986 Boston Red Sox? Oh, New York Mets. Oof. Sorry. Childhood scars. I could probably name the starting lineup of the 1986 Boston Red Sox. Can you name the 12 tri- tribes of Israel? Can you name the 12 disciples? How are you doing living out the Ten Commandments? Can you recall the fruit of the Spirit? How much does the Word of God permeate your heart, your mind, your soul, your everything? Sometimes even sports can be an idol. Not by word, but by how we live our lives, of course. 
course. Oh, we have idols in our world today. We're not bowing down, doing Baal worship, and we are not uh, allowing ourselves to eat food sacrificed to idols per se. But we have them. And we need to deal with them. And we even have them in the church. And we need to deal with them in the church. That's the whole point of this letter. Jezebel was somebody that was given a pulpit to speak, and she led God's church down some very disturbing roads. Just one more scripture that I have here for you before we move on to the next point. It really drives this point home. Is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. It's a familiar verse. Just read this one. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Oh, may this never be true of, of us. May we always hold true to the word of God. This is what was happening in Thyatira. You see, you had people in Thyatira that wanted to justify their own lifestyles, their own lives of sin, and they were so consumed with that, the culture had become so ingrained into the church that they lost their way and they lost their distinctive and they allowed somebody to teach them who's preaching a false doctrine because their itching ears wanted so badly to justify their own lifestyles that they were taken away from the truth of the gospel. And they were able to do exactly that, justify their own lifestyles. But as we're going to see in this next point, there are consequences for sin. Just as a reminder, point number three, there are consequences for sin. And we need to always be mindful of this because Christ spells this out for us in just these few verses here. Verse 21 talking about Jezebel, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Oh, there's a lot going on in just that one verse. God will always give us a way out to resist temptation. He'll give us a strength, a pathway out. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10. But when we do sin, God will allow us to repent of that sin. And it's not on a time clock. It's all about our heart. The text says she was unwilling to repent of her sin. And that's when the consequences of sin come in. God will always give us the ability to repent of our sin, but when we choose not to do so, oh my goodness, there are consequences for that. Let's read verses 22 and 23. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each according to your deeds. These are very difficult words from Christ, but very important ones. And there are a few reminders in here. First, first of all, the bed of suffering, most commentators believe that this was sickness that came over Jezebel, that this was one of the consequences of sin that resulted, not because God caused this but because her own choices being unrepentant in her heart she chose not to repent and there's a consequence for sin we need to always remember that secondly in verse 23 it talks about her children being struck dead it's not talking about her actual children it's talking about her disciples her followers but even still that is such a incredibly sobering truth to read that Also in verse 23, it says that 
they will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. May we always be reminded that God sees beyond our circumstances. God sees beyond our excuses. God sees beyond our rationalization for our own lives of sin. God sees our hearts and our minds, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. So lest we forget that there are consequences for sin, we need to always be reminded of the gravity of our own situation, the gravity of our own depravity, and our own need for a savior. This is the message of the gospel. This is what the church is supposed to be doing, proclaiming the truth of the gospel, not trying to rationalize and tolerate sin. Not to become so ingrained into the culture that we lose that distinctive of the power of the gospel. And yet this is exactly what was happening in Thyatira. Moving on, there's another point here. Because, boy, this, this is not exactly an uplifting, happy message so far. These letters that John writes, that Christ writes to these churches, they're heavy. There's a lot of depth and gravity to them. But verse 24 begins to change things a little bit. It begins to scope out to the bigger picture of what else is happening here. The fourth point is that there is a charge to the faithful that we see here. And it's to hold on and to stand firm. Listen to the words of Christ. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Except you hold on to what you have until I come. This is a calling to the church in Thyatira, but also to our church and our culture today as we look at a culture that, as I said before, is increasingly hostile to the gospel. Christ is calling out the fact that there are those who are faithful. There are those who were not seduced by her teaching. There are those that do not cave to the culture of this world so that we lose the distinctive of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to those people, he says, hold on to what we have. What does that look like for us today? To hold on to what we have. What do we have? Well, there's a long list for that. What do we have? Because sometimes it can feel very oppressive. It can feel very hopeless to be living in the culture that we are in. As Pastor Paul pointed out recently, one of the most post-Christian cultures in the entire world, the, the entire country, you focus that in the northeast portion of the country, and here we are in Albany. It can be very discouraging. We can feel a lot like the Christians in Thyatira. What are we supposed to do? How can we live this faith we profess? How can we profess this faith? Unless we know this faith. How can we know the faith that we're supposed to be professing and living? Unless you read about it. Charge to the faithful in our world today, is to stay anchored to the word of God. To not allow falsehoods and false teachings and rationalization and tolerance of sin to infiltrate the church. Never should we allow that. Never should we stand for that. The call for the church today, the faithful, is that we would hold on to the word of God, that it would so be a part of our lives that people see Christ in us. That's what we need to hold on to. And it's not just, if I could be so bold as to say, it's not just the word of God that we are to hold on to. What else do we have? 
Christ says, hold on to what you have until I come. Yes, we have the word of God. We have so much more. We have the fellowship of Christians who build each other up in our faith in an increasingly hostile culture. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. I know I've preached on this before and I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. In the midst of what feels like hopelessness in this type of a culture, where we are constantly bombarded with temptations to bend towards that culture and to lose the distinctiveness of our faith. What do we hold on to? The power of the Holy Spirit. You have the power of God at work within you as a Christ follower. Not a power that comes from your own, but a power that comes from God. And that power is your witness to a dying world that needs the gospel. And that power of the Holy Spirit is what we hold on to. It's what we stand firm to. It's what we look to in times of trouble. The Holy Spirit-empowered church will stand the test of a culture that increasingly wants to pull away from the church. We will build each other up in our faith because the Holy Spirit is here and alive and active and changing his church every single day, conforming us to the likeness of God. Oh, we have a lot to hold on to. Don't feel hopeless in the midst of a culture that is hostile towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. And certainly don't be taken in by lying spirits and doctrines of demons. Don't be taken in by what your itching ears want to hear. Part of the sin of Thyatira was wanting so badly to have a growing church that they sacrificed the truth of the gospel. And they said, okay, we understand the pressures we're all up against in these trade guilds. We understand that you have to go to these parties. We understand that sexual immorality happens at these parties. And we understand that idol worship is just how business is done here. It's part of the culture. And the cost of the culture is you got to do these things. So they wanted so badly to relate to the outside world that they compromised the gospel to get there. May we never do that. Stand firm. And finally, the last point that I want us to make today is that when the church blends too much into the culture, the world can't see Christ in us anymore. Leave that one. I'm going to let that one hang out there for a while. When the church blends too much into the culture, the world can't see Christ in us anymore. I want to give you just a couple of extreme examples, neither of which I believe are healthy, I want to call us to a scripture I'll share with you later that I believe shares a balanced approach to how we relate to the culture around us. The first extreme example is, well, what we've been studying all day today is when the church blends so much into the culture that we turn into another social group, that someone can show up and and just experience a group that exists for its own means, for its own gain. And of course, okay, there's some religious connections to it, but there's no distinctives. You know what the definition of holiness is? To be set apart. When the church fails to be set apart anymore, by definition, it becomes unholy. So the first extreme example is unholiness because we are so consumed with relating to the culture that we lose the distinctive of the gospel. The other extreme, equally important for the church to guard against, is, well, best told in a story. You guys okay for a story? I'm still 
I'm still doing okay for time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a quick story. Fourth of July. This past Fourth of July, my family and I, we were on vacation in Florida visiting uh, Lisa's family. And we had this awesome experience on the beach because that's what people do in Florida, right? You've got hundreds of people on the beach. And we were, we were 30 minutes before the fireworks started. And we were going to have fireworks to our north and to our south. We were set up in our lawn chairs, and literally hundreds and hundreds of people are gathered on the beach. Everything was ready to go. You had families that were there just to set the scene for you. You had little kids and families and footballs being thrown and frisbees being thrown. You had other groups over here that were a little bit of a party crowd, but they weren't getting too rowdy. And, of course, they, they, you know, they were taking part in things that you know, we wouldn't. But it was fine. Everything was contained. You had people just genuinely enjoying themselves getting ready for the 4th of July. And then 30 minutes before, you know, a group of three people show up. One guy with a camera on a stick, ready to go. Another guy with a sign. And then you had a preacher with a portable sound system and a microphone. Now this guy, uh, this beach preacher as I call him, he chose that moment to... Now granted, there are families and little kids, and we're talking 8-year-olds and 10-year-olds, to go through the list of the things that God hates that, are on, that were listed in big, bold print on the sign. And he started spewing out, God hates this, and this is an abomination, and God's judgment is on this country because this, 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 and this, and do you want to be a part of the culture that exists, and you are in defiance and against the word of God and the will of God and casting judgment on everybody at that beach. Is that a good way to do it? I, I will spare you the details of how the next 45 minutes played out. But let's just say I had a conversation with um, the guy holding the sign. Beach preacher went off and got himself arrested and all that fun stuff. <laughs> it was the 4th of July we won't soon forget. But the point is this. Sometimes you could be so consumed with being against the culture, that you completely forget how to relate to the culture. And that's on the opposite extreme of what God calls us to as his church. We're not to blend so far into the culture that we lose the distinct of the gospel, but we're not to be so opposed to the culture that we cannot relate to the culture. Because I'll tell you, everybody on that beach, and I was watching, they had nothing kind to say. The cause of Christ was not advanced because of what was happening there. My point is this. We have a distinctive calling. We are called to be holy, to be set apart as God's church. The sin of Thyatira is they forgot that and they allowed sin to be tolerated to the point where they became unholy. And Christ called them out on that. Wasn't the entire church, there was a remnant there that God gave this charge to, to say, hold to what you have, and that is true of us as well. Hold to the power of the, the gospel. Hold to the fellowship of this church. Hold to the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, and we will never go wrong as this church. So how are we to live? Let me just give you one closing scripture. This is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. I believe in so many ways this is such a great summary statement today. Paul is speaking and he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you 
or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in, in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Just a few takeaways as we close this message out. How are we supposed to live as God's church? I believe we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live your lives with integrity. That does not mean you're going to live a perfect life as a Christian. That's impossible. But when you sin, repent. Repent of our sin. And allow God to keep transforming us. That's a life worthy of the calling of the gospel. Be one as God's church. You hear it all throughout the New Testament how important it is to maintain unity in the Holy Spirit. Be one unified church. And don't be afraid. Don't fear the culture. Be indwelt in the culture. Don't allow the culture to change the church, but allow the church to change the culture around us. That's what the church has been doing for 2,000 years, and that's what we will continue to do. Believe in Christ and be fully prepared to suffer for Christ. This is the calling of God's church, and this will guide us into our future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift and the power of the gospel. Lord, thank you for the proclamation of your word and for the witness that we have as your church. We understand the responsibility that you've given us as your church to be indwelt in this culture, in this place that you've set us in. But Lord, may you protect us from tolerating sin. May you convict us of wrongdoing. May you convict us of that sin and may we repent of it. And may you lead us as a stronger, unified church into the next chapters that you have for us. Father, I pray that we would be known for our love, for our deeds, for our faith, for our perseverance, Lord, for our service. And I pray that our culture around us would know it, that they would see the holiness of God displayed through the power of his church. May you continually transform this world around us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's continue to worship God together.